Hi, I'm Guy Powell, and welcome to the next episode of The Backstory on the Shroud of Turin. If you haven't already done so, please visit GuyPowell.com and sign up for more episodes. I am the author of the upcoming book, The Only Witness. It's a historical fiction tracing a possible history of the Shroud over the last two millennia. And today, this is going to be a very special podcast. We're not only going to learn about the Shroud, but also funeral practices, and especially from the National Funeral, uh, the National Museum of Funeral History. And uh, for that, we have two people on the call, which is also very special. We have Nora Creech, a longtime synthenologist, and we have Genevieve Keeney, who is the uh, president and CEO of the museum. So with that, let me introduce uh, both of them and give you a short background. So Nora, in, uh, Nora Creech, as I mentioned, has uh, been interested in the Shroud since the 1970s and has extensively studied this linen cloth. As an experienced lecturer on the history, science, and pastoral implications of the Shroud, she is passionate about sharing the facts about the mysterious image and connecting it to the gospel message. Nora earned her Master's of Arts degree in Faith and Culture from the University of St. Thomas in Houston, Texas, Texas, and has attended year-long courses in Shroud Studies offered by the Pontifical Athenium Regina Apostolorum in Rome, Italy. She is working with the National Museum of Funeral History in Houston to develop an exhibit on the most famous burial of all time, the Shroud of Turin, which will open to the public on April 27th in just a few short weeks. We also have Genevieve Keeney, uh, and she has been with the National Museum of Funeral History, NMFH, in Houston since 2007, first serving as the museum's director in 2007, then president and chief operating officer in 2012, and currently she is the president and chief executive officer. She proudly showcases the museum as an educational and cultural resource for all who visit its extensive array of permanent and changing exhibits. Keeney, uh, and her uh, last name is actually Keeney Vasquez, sees the NMF H as a living museum about the culture of funerals throughout history as well as modern times. Death is sure to happen to all of us, yet most of us don't plan for it, says Keeney. The museum is a neutral place to ponder and discuss this guaranteed event, as well as explore the history of the industry, and there's so much to learn at this museum. Uh, Genevieve, Nora, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having us. Absolutely. Good to have both of you. So uh, let's start with Nora. So Nora, tell us your backstory on the Shroud of Turin, and then also uh, a little bit more about how you got involved in the National Museum of Funeral History. Well, thank you for the opportunity to be here. And as you said in the introduction, I've been interested in the Shroud since the 1970s. I was a teenager in high school in 1978 when the STIRP team did their famous studies in Turin, so the Shroud of Turin Research Project team. And it turned out that one of the scientists on that team was a member of the church that I attended growing up in Boulder, Colorado. His name is Rudy Dictal. And Rudy, once he came back from being a part of the STIRP team, he started giving lectures in the Boulder area and every time he gave a lecture, my father and I would attend. So this was back in 78, 79, 1980, before any of the, the STIRP team papers were published. 
So Rudy was a professor at the University of Colorado. And if I needed to write a research paper, I would go visit Rudy in his office and he would give me information that I could include for my research papers as a college student. So long-term long interest in the shroud. And I started becoming more interested when my own children were learning about their faith and they were going through the confirmation program at our church. And I thought it would be a good idea to offer the, the Shroud Studies course for the confirmation students because the teenagers were very interested in learning about the, the passion and death of Jesus and how it's documented on the Shroud and then making the connection between the Shroud and the resurrection and what that means for our faith. So starting in... Uh, the early 2000s, I started giving lectures for the high school kids, and then that grew into lectures for the, the adults in our church community. So that's a little bit of the background of, of where I've, I've been doing my shroud work. Oh, fantastic. And then how did you get connected with the National Museum of Funeral History? Well, that's a, a long story. Genevieve can help me tell this story. <laughs> so in 2018, I was living in Houston. I had finished my master's degree in faith and culture, and I was looking around for ways to be, uh, to share my faith. And that was the goal of the faith and culture degree was to equip lay people to be able to share their faith in their communities. And so the idea was that that we were empowered to, to be vocal witnesses in the community. So I was looking at what that would mean for me. And I came across this course through the Regina Apostolorum, which is the Pontifical University in Rome, Italy. And they were offering a course in Shroud Studies and it was being offered for the first time in English. And of course this all was distance learning. So it was a year long course, two full semesters of coursework and it was the first time it was offered in English. Well, it turned out that there were only two people in the English language course in 2018, and we both happened to live in Houston. <laughs> and so Father Dalton, who's one of the instructors in the course, recognized that we were both in Houston and introduced us to each other. And he was at that time a transitional deacon, Deacon Jared, and he was also living in Houston. And he made a trip to visit the museum and he actually literally ran into Genevieve in the museum and I'm going to let her tell that portion of the story because this is how we got to know each other. Yeah so Genevieve uh, tell us that it sounds fascinating and uh, Father Dalton is certainly a uh, an interesting person to get to know. Oh yes I have to speak to Father Dalton he is amazing he he has a wealth of knowledge and um and just, I don't know, it's just the, his approach and the way he, he speaks about the shroud, it really is, it's not only uplifting, but it's, it's, it's powerful and rememberable, you know, and, and actually we have on our website, one of his lectures that he gave uh, on the shroud. So anybody listening wants to hear one of Father Dalton's lectures, please, you know, visit the website and, and you can see it on the shroud page. Um, but how did the, how, how did the, uh, Deacon, then Deacon Jared and I, you know, come to meet, um, you know, I find the story very fascinating because as the president of the museum, my job now is primarily administrative, uh, being, you know, in my office, uh, you know, eight to 10 hours a day, 
and not so much out on the museum floor itself. Uh, early on when I'm when I was curating exhibits or overseeing the expansion of the museum, of course, I was out on the floor of the museum quite often. You could find me there. Um, but since all that has taken place, my new job now is back in my office. And uh, so it's still to this day, I could not tell you what brought me into the museum. Um, but something pulled me into the museum itself. And uh, as I was walking down one of the main, you know, walk areas of the museum, the I, I ran into Deacon Jared and I, I saw him and of course I asked him a question of uh, the Pope exhibit and I said well how did you enjoy the Pope exhibit because of course whenever we have people of, of religion to come and actually tour the exhibit I always like to approach them and get some feedback uh, just to kind of validate its existence and and its purpose on educating those in the faith and so he him and I engaged in conversation and he then looked at me and said, have you ever thought of bringing the Shroud of Turin here? And I said, mm, no, let, I, I, I don't know, but maybe let's talk more about it. And so when he said it, I had a, a, a small sense of familiarity to the wording of the Shroud of Turin, but in my mind, it wasn't popping, you know, like, like I really knew what he was talking about. And so, um, you know, for lack of, of, of appearing uh, ignorant to him, I just said, yes, um, can we still talk more about this? You know, I'm, I am interested in what you had to say. Uh, and, and, of course, you know, I just went back and validated what the Shroud Turin was in my mind with what I thought it was to ensure I was uh, understanding what it was that he was wanting me to discuss further about and bring to the museum. And I thought, wow, this is an amazing piece. How is this ever going to get to the National Museum of Funeral History? Um, I, I was, you know, I'm always up for a challenge. I'm always up for new ideas when it comes to curating exhibits. And so I, I said, well, let's talk further. And so then he introduced me to Nora and the three of us sat down and brainstormed uh, about the concept of an exhibit uh, to the Shroud of Turin. Uh, but most importantly, how do we get our hands on a copy of the Shroud of Turin. And so it's been quite a journey over the last, what, three years now uh, to get where we are today. And, you know, many of times we've had challenges and we've had roadblocks and we've had so many obstacles thrown our way. Um, but our faith, our perseverance, our determination and our trust in each other has, has got us where we are today and and to actually see this exhibit open. Yeah, it really is amazing. Um, and uh, uh, and to actually have the, you know, the exhibit there. Uh, and, I, you know, when you were asked the question, you know, what would it, what would it be like to have the Shroud of Turin? You know, mm -hmm. I thought, oh, my God, it's the, the original as opposed to a replica, <laughs> you know, an exact copy. And uh, now that would, you know, that's the, that's fascinating. And the, and the copies uh that are out there nowadays are just incredibly good um I've, I've seen the one that's up in the museum that you was up in the museum of the bible and and it is just uh it's awe-inspiring and i mean just the shroud itself is just awe-inspiring so but uh let's uh step back a second so what was the background and history of the uh the of the funeral museum what what actually led to its inception and and now it's uh, continued uh growth and mm -hmm. existence uh, well, um, you know, 
the museum opened in 1992 in Houston. However, uh, years prior to that, uh, Mr. R.L. Waltrip, uh, God rest his soul, um, who um, unfortunately passed away um, last night. Um, and um, I find it very ironic that we're able to sit here and, and, and continue his legacy like this. Um, and, 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 I, and I'm greatly appreciative of it. Um, interesting talking about him in this moment because, um, you know, all of this time I've done these interviews, I've done these interviews and he's been present. And, and, and now I have to uh, change my, my verbiage and talk in past tense. Um, so please forgive me if I, if I uh, transposition from present to past. So, um, so yes, yeah, so in uh, many years before 1992, uh, Mr. Waltrip, who grew one of the largest funeral corporations in the world, um, as he was on that journey, he began to see a lot of the amazing tools of our trade, the items that were very significant to our practice of caring for the dead being discarded in the landfills. Um, because like, you know, what are you going to do with an embalming machine that was once used on somebody? What are you going to do with a cooling board or a hearse? And, you know, these items very significant to our profession uh, were, unless you had a special niche for them in your life, uh, they really truly just became trash. Nobody wanted them. Mm. Um, and so he saw that as an opportunity to create the museum as a, an as a place to house uh, these tools of our trade and this, uh, the history of how we have evolved and, and the major undertaking that actually goes into caring for our dead that people don't realize. And that's how the museum came to be, uh, was an opportunity to do just that, to preserve our industry and our profession and speak to it and the history of it because we've been caring for the dead since the day we began living. Uh, and so, um, rightfully so. And the museum has been here in Houston since 1992. We're going on 30, over 30 mm -hmm. years of existence now. And we are constantly growing as we, you know, we're, we're privately funded. We, I have to raise all the money for the museum. So each year as we are able to meet our financial raising goals, uh, it allows us to just do a little bit more for the museum. And, uh, and, and we're really excited to bring the shroud, you know, to the museum. And a lot of people might not understand initially when you see those two together, the National Museum of Funeral History and the Shroud of Turin, you know, it's, it, it's almost like vinegar and water to some people if you don't, but if you really think about it, it's not, it's, it's, it's very much water and water and it mixes mm -hmm. very well together because in death, we do seek our religion. Uh, in death, we tend to use the religion as our guide to our practices when we die. Uh, and, the, and, and then, of course, you know, uh, Jesus himself, the man of the shroud, uh, he died. And because of his death, he was buried, uh, just as we all will die and be buried. And it's hand in hand, water and water.
Yeah, absolutely. It really, I, I was, uh, I really found that a, an interesting piece of, uh, you know, bringing the two together. Uh, let me switch over to uh, Nora. So Nora, what was kind of the inspiration and how did the whole process unfold as you, uh, you and Genevieve worked together to bring the shroud to the museum? Well, we were very much guided by the people at Athonia, where Father Dalton is a part of Athonia, and they helped us to go through the process of requesting the certified copy. So it had to come from the, the head of the Archdiocese of Galveston, Houston, who is Cardinal DiNardo. And so I wrote a letter for Cardinal DiNardo's signature to send to the Archbishop of Turin requesting an official copy. And we sent that, I think we sent it in 2019. Mm -hmm. And yes. we we thought we were going to be opening an exhibit in sometime in 2020. We had our capital campaign plan to be kicked off in March of 2020. And of course the whole world shut down in March of 2020. And I subsequently moved from Houston to California and a lot of uh, the world was quiet for a long period of time, but as we came out of hibernation, Genevieve and I touched base and she said she was still really committed to the exhibit. And, and of course, I really wanted to see it happen being a shroudy. And so we we started reaching out again about the status of this, this copy that we had requested. And I want to say part of the excitement of having an exhibit on the shroud in the funeral museum is that it's a secular space. And most of the shroud exhibits are in sacred spaces. And so to have Cardinal DiNardo write a letter, sign a letter on our behalf, attesting to the, the funeral museum being a good place to house the, a shroud exhibit, that really meant a lot to, to us, to Genevieve and, and to me that we could have a, an exhibit in a secular space. So a whole different group of people would be exposed to the shroud than the normal people who learn or seek out the shroud. So as time passed, we finally got a letter earlier in 2022 that we were getting a very special shroud replica. So we got one of the replicas on old linen just like the one that's at the Museum of the Bible. I think there are only seven of them in the world. And so one of them will be installed at the, the National Museum of Funeral History. And I say these are really special copies because all the while that the world was shut down due to COVID, this flax was growing in a field in Bergamo, Italy. And this flax was grown from heirloom flax seeds that had been stored in the seed vault, the international seed vault. And then when the seeds were, when the flax was harvested, it was harvested using first century techniques. And then it was woven into thread. And then the thread was woven into the linen. And then on this old linen, they used a high definition printer and printed an exact copy of what the shroud looks like on this linen. And it is absolutely beautiful. And we're so thrilled and privileged to have it. And so that was really the first piece that that once we knew we had our shroud replica, we were in business and very excited. And then the most recent piece is that we have a, a commitment to purchase one of Luigi Mattei's bronze sculptures of the man of the shroud. And we're hoping it will make it in time for the grand opening, but it's it'll be close. 
but we have a, a benefactor who is is paying for us to have that beautiful sculpture be a part of the the exhibit. And then the third thing I want to mention is that Rudy Dictel, who is the inspiration for me learning about the shroud, he donated to us all of his personal artifacts from his time as a member of the STIRP team. And so when Genevieve and I were going through the boxes of what Rudy donated to us, there were a lot of treasures in there. But a couple of things that stood out were he had some of the mylar, which covered the examination table that the STIRP team built specially to, to examine the, the shroud because they wanted to make sure there wasn't any chance of any kind of interaction between the examination table and the shroud. So they covered it with this mylar, which was donated from NASA. And so we were very excited about that because the museum is in Houston and we have this connection with NASA and we can show how stringent the scientists were in their examination of the shroud. We also have from the personal collection of Barry Schwartz, one of the magnets that was used to hold the shroud to the examination table. And then also from the Stara collection, we have the torque applicator that was used to take the sticky tape samples from the stirps, stirp time. So we have a lot of treasures in this exhibit for everyone who, who comes to see it. Well, that's that's phenomenal. I, you know, all of those little pieces that uh, that you've been able to recover and have in there, and then now for safekeeping with the museum. So, is the exhibit now? Is it going to be permanent, or is it going to be uh, just a temporary? Or how do you see the future for the the shroud exhibit? Definitely permanent. Awesome. Yeah, that yeah. Uh, that's great because. Uh, uh, unfortunately, I won't get down there this year, I don't think, but I am going to get down there. And so I definitely want to <laughs> see it and, uh, and what have you. I was, uh, I was privileged to be able to get up to the Museum of the Bible and see that one. And, uh, and, and now uh, just, you know, one of the things that I found when just sitting and standing in front of that replica of the shroud, it's, it is just... Uh, it's, it's, I don't know, you, I don't even know how to describe it. It's awe-inspiring, but it's also very calming and looking forward to the same experience then coming down to, to, uh, to visit uh, the National Museum of Funeral History. Um, so uh, let me switch over to, uh, uh, let's see here, to Genevieve. So let's talk a little bit about the museum uh, overall. What are some of the other interesting exhibits that really are what people are uh, flocking to see when they come to the, uh, the museum? Um, definitely the cremation exhibit. Uh, that that exhibit was uh, was a long time was, was long overdue. Let's put it that way. Um, many people would come to the museum and say, "Why isn't there anything on cremation here that we can learn about?" And uh, so we, you know, collaborated with Kena, and it took us about two years uh, from concept to actual opening uh, to to create a, a very well respected. Uh, cremation exhibit that I think, um, you know, helps people to understand that, you know, they do have choices to make. Uh, it's burial or it's cremation. And, and if you make the choice of cremation, there are many options that are still available to you uh, once you have been cremated uh, that people aren't aware of and a lot of times don't learn of until they're at a funeral home and, and learning of this. And unfortunately, they're learning it during a time of grief. Uh, so it makes it even more cumbersome to comprehend uh, some of the things that uh, 
that you could do to memorialize your loved one. And so I think the museum, you know, does a fascinating job to help people to take a look at uh, not only the practices of the funeral director, understanding what our role is in caring for their loved one, but know that planning for your funeral is important. Uh, and because there are so many options available to you, uh, there's so many questions and decisions that have to be made that people may not realize. And so the museum is a wonderful place for that. And our international hall is also very fascinating. We talk about different funeral uh, customs and rituals from around the world. Our largest exhibit is housed there uh, is the celebrating the lives and deaths of the Pope. And we talk about all of the Popes going all the way back to the first Pope. And um, we, we showcase the rituals and the customs that still continue on hundreds of years later, whereas the American uh, way of dying, if, if you will, or some of our other uh, cultural ways tends to change uh, over time based on the expectations uh, of the people and, and what they want or what they're willing to do or what their expectations are. Um, another thing that you really can see uh, an upward trend of is the embalming and or the cremation just because we're more of a transportable society now. We're all over the world, but technology has brought us together. Uh, so you could be somewhere else, but yet still attend your loved one's funeral. Uh, whereas before that might not have been possible before technology. And so the art of embalming would help preserve your loved one until the arrangements could be made and people could come in and, and be a part of the closing ceremony of the funeral. Um, and, and as well as being able to transport that person who has passed away to the location uh, of their final resting place. You know, just so many things have transformed and changed as, as our society continued to be more transportable and, and mm. spread out throughout the world. Yeah, I know my, my partner, when I think it was his, uh, his wife's, uh, one of his parents passed away during COVID and, and the funeral was held uh, in, uh, over Zoom uh, except for the the closest family members and so uh, and I can't remember where the the funeral was going to be there was no flying so they they were stuck in North Carolina and the funeral I think was up in New York or something like that and they were not able to attend it other than through zoom so you're right the the technology has certainly changed uh, a lot of things now I did notice on your website uh, that you also have something about the cremations on the island of Bali and, uh, uh, you know, you never think about uh, other cultures like that. Uh, tell us a little bit about that. Uh, well, that right now is, uh, is still an article that Mr. Bedeker, who's, our, who's now our chairman, uh, he wrote the article. And we're currently working on the, the paneling for that to be housed within the museum. Uh, you can read about it on the website, uh, but it'll be another couple of months before those panels oh, okay. are installed. And you can actually read about those specific traditions. Um, and yeah, so, you know, there's, there's little pockets of the world that we're still like discovering as, uh, you know, myself, the curator or Mr. Bedeker, you know, our chairman, you know, just it's the curious mind wants to know. And so as you begin the research and, and see the different customs and traditions once we find them we try and uh, put them together in a very educational way and bring it to the museum so that once again people can expand their mind and realize mm. that that there's so many interesting ways that people care for the dead 
throughout the world. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, so let me come back to Nora a second. Uh, you know, you mentioned some of the things that you had from uh, Rudy Dichtel, and you talked about the Mylar. Uh, from his papers and other things, what what did you uh, find was the most interesting that you were able to glean out of, uh, out of, I'm sure, boxes and boxes of really fascinating stuff? Yes, he sent us quite a few boxes, and there were in there the manuals that were developed when the STIRP team was put together, they planned for 18 months before they went over to Turin. And they actually met in person in a hotel and talked through all of the tests that they would be doing because every minute of the 120 hours that they had for studies was planned. And so we have the manuals that were his personal manuals for, for the STIRP team. And Rudy's job on the STIRP team was to set up all of the equipment and make sure it kept running. And that was really no small task because it was in uh, an old palace that didn't have all of the electrical connections that you might need. And it also didn't have the uh, same electricity. So he had to really be handy to get all of the equipment set up and to keep it running for the full time of the STIRP studies. So was he setting the equipment up prior to the 120 hours or did he then he his setup started with the 120 hours? That's a good question. We we have him coming to Houston for the grand opening and we're having an evening on the 27th that we're calling an evening with the experts. And it's going to be a conversation between Rudy and also Barry Schwartz, who was the documenting photographer for the STIRP study. And we're planning to have a conversation between the two of them. And that is a great question. I'm going to put that on my list to ask them. I don't know the answer to that. Yeah, I, I do remember uh, you mentioned Barry Schwartz. Um, I've uh, spoken with him and interviewed him. And uh, I do remember him saying that all of the boxes of equipment got held up because there was one box. I think that was an x-ray machine and had then the, that nuclear or whatever it is warning sign on it. And, uh, and that held up the uh, all of the equipment for quite a while. Uh, and so they were really rushed trying to set things up. So mm -hmm. um, yeah, definitely. Um, I don't know, you know, maybe, uh, maybe I will try and get out there for the opening. <laughs> I went up to Washington, DC. Houston is not harder to get to. So maybe I'll come out and meet you all and go from there. <laughs> well, we would love to have you. We're very excited about this. And, and Rudy and Barry are both excited to be there and to be a part of it. And we really have appreciated their support and encouragement. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, uh, Genevieve, let me come back to you. So uh, when they come to the museum, and you've kind of touched on this, uh, and the visitor leaves the museum, what do you want them to come home with? What is the one overriding thing that you want them to come home with? To have a better sense of appreciation for life, uh, you know, because life is not guaranteed and, uh, and, and it's, it's very finite. Uh, and to know that it's precious and to just live a fuller life, you know, because we will all die one day. Uh, that's, you know, one thing that none of us will ever be able to get out of. Uh, and, and to be able to, uh, you know, if you can plan a little bit of what you want your funeral to look like, you know, take that burden off of your family members and have those hard conversations. Uh, you know, if, if I can, you know, it has, have a little personal experience uh, at, at how this hard conversation can take place. Uh, you know, uh, it, it, I had a personal experience today. I had a couple of personal experiences today. Uh, 
but um, I'm taking my father to a medical procedure today and we are sitting in the waiting room and he said, well, before we left, he said, if anything happens to me, you need this and this is this is what you need to know. And I said, okay. So now, if I, now we're in the waiting room waiting for him to be called. And he says, well, if anything happens to me, I said, I know, dad, you want to be cremated. And he goes, yes. And I said, oh, and by the way, I was thinking maybe we should have a family plot uh, at the Woodlands. And I'm going to take you to the Woodlands, okay, just so you know. And, you know, because, you know, the grandkids, they really probably don't want to have all of our urns of ashes, you know, in a couple of years, you know, that's not fair to the grandkids, I said, so I think we really need to take an opportunity to figure out where we want to put all the family's urns of ashes. Uh, And, you know, that's a really good idea. But it was such a simple conversation in a very neutral space of a doctor's office but I walked away knowing that if something happened to my father in that moment, by the time I had gotten back, um, I knew exactly what he wanted. And that was important to me. Mm. No, and I agree. I absolutely understand. It is, it's nice to know what their wishes are and, yes. uh, you know, beforehand so that you can definitely have certainty because there's so much uncertainty going on when, when the moment arises and, and the grief and just being able to think straight. And it's nice to have certain things uh, clearly, clearly defined. Uh, mm-hmm. Thank you for that. Uh, Nora, how about you on the Shroud of Turin exhibit? What do you want people to come away with when they, after they've visited it and, and, uh, and been able to experience that, uh, this, this wonderful new exhibit? Well, I think we're going to have a variety of different kinds of visitors. We're going to have people that have never heard of the Shroud before. Mm -hmm. So they're going to be learning about it for the very first time. So I want those people to leave with a real sense of curiosity about what is this ancient fabric and who is the man who was wrapped in it. And so there will be a lot of curiosity and desire to learn more. I also think we're going to have people that will actually make pilgrimages to come, people who are familiar with the shroud. And like you, they want to come and to see these things because they've heard about the beautiful reproduction. They've heard about the Luigi Matei sculpture. We also have some of Barry Schwartz's black and white images, the life-size black and white images that are the, the photographic negative images. And so people will be very curious who already know about the shroud to come and see those items in person. In addition to what I've already described, we're going to have some of the the weapons that were used in the crucifixion. We have some nails and the cap of thorns, a reproduction of the flagrum and also of the Roman spear. So it's an opportunity for people who want to learn more about what the gospels tell us about the, the suffering that Jesus endured for us. And it'll be an opportunity for people to meditate on Christ. And then, of course, we want people to leave with the realization that the shroud image was created at the moment of resurrection. So it's it's leaving with a sense of hope and with an understanding that what the Gospels tell us is true because we have the, the document in the scriptures and then we have the monument with the shroud that shows that what Jesus said was really the truth and that we can put our hope and our faith in in the resurrection of Jesus and then what he promised for us is that that we would share in that life with him. 
Yeah, that is such a powerful message. And that is so true. You know, you brought up, though, in, uh, early on there, that a lot of people have not heard of the Shroud of Turin. I was uh, at a networking event, and there were uh, a handful of uh, Christians that were promoting uh, uh, Christian um, networking, a, a Christian networking association. And when I mentioned, you know, well, this is what I'm, I'm working on, you know, on, uh, and, and I'm putting this book together on the Shroud of Turin, every one of them, they were all under 30, probably, but every one of them said, what's that? And mm -hmm. so even there's a huge Christian community that doesn't even know what it is. So um, kudos to you in terms of bringing that message to and that knowledge of the first of all of the proof of the resurrection or the almost proof of the resurrection yeah. depends on how you want to put it uh, but the proof of the resurrection and then like you said the hope that that comes out of that mm -hmm. Genevieve and I have been doing lectures together in Houston since I think maybe 2020 we've gone all mm -hmm. over the city of Houston talking about the shroud together and often people come up to me and say, why has nobody ever told me about this before? And especially the young people, they, they have no mm. knowledge of the shroud. And I feel a real sense of responsibility for sharing the message of the shroud and especially sharing it with young people. And I'm so grateful to Genevieve that she also has this vision and she's been willing to, to set aside the space to provide the funding, to provide the ongoing care for this exhibit. And I'm just so grateful that the people of Houston and all the visitors will have the opportunity to see this exhibit. Yeah, absolutely. That's wonderful. So uh, unfortunately, it's uh, coming to a close. Is there anything else that you'd like to mention before we actually close? I, I mean, I, I not so much mention, but, you know, you kind of opened up a little question that I have is, you know, I often I now want to know why do not so many people know about it? Because even when I was asked by now Father Jared, uh, Deacon Jared at the time, when I was asked, if, you know, would I bring an exhibit on the Shroud of Turin to Houston? I, too, was faced in that moment of I've heard of it, but I don't know if I know. I don't know if I'm truly thinking of what he's speaking mm. to. And so, um, you know, with that being said, is why mm -hmm. is it that so many people don't know about it? Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I think, uh, and I hate to say it, I think that, uh, and I, you know, I, I've talked about it so much, but that 1988 uh, radiocarbon dating was a was such a travesty. And it really turned, even, even synonologists and shroudies, uh, it turned a lot of them off. And I know even myself, I, you know, I'd heard about Sterp and kind of read something in, you know, in a magazine or whatever. And I said, oh, that's really interesting. And then when that radiocarbon dating came out and the press that surrounded that, I says, ah, you know, I guess it's a fake. And it was only really maybe 10 years ago that my brother then uh, sent me a book, uh, one of the Ian Wilson books, and that kind of got me back into it. Otherwise, you know, I might never have even uh, been, been in, you know, gotten involved in it. One of the other things I've found is as I'm doing these, these podcasts and video casts and getting involved in knowing more people, there is definitely a lot more activity uh, generally online. And, uh, uh, and, and so I think the word is starting to get out. And hopefully as that snowball starts to really roll, that uh, over the next, uh, you know, 
years and decades that it will really become known by by just about everyone. I hope you're right because it's such a fascinating topic and there's so many ways you can study the shroud. And for me, the interest for me is the theological meaning of the, the shroud and the wounds of the shroud that are depicted on the shroud, but other people have interest in, in many different aspects of the shroud. Yeah, absolutely. Well, the and the pastoral side, and then the, even the scientific side, and and the historical side. It's just uh, it is. There's so much there. It's it's just amazing. And uh, looking forward and to learning the, more every day. Yeah, and then the history of the funeral side, right? I mean, yeah. truthfully, he you know he was prepared. His body was prepared in a shroud, as we still see that being done today in funeral practices. Uh, and, and placed in a tomb, a place of burial, and we still do that today. So even from the history of the funeral industry, uh, it's a very fascinating uh, uh, study, if you will, to, to look back on and see how far that tradition has, has come, you know, even from that time period to today. Mm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, uh, let me close there. Uh, I want to thank both of you so much for uh, being and participating in this uh, podcast and um, helping me to understand a little bit more about certainly a lot more about the museum. And, uh, and it's always interesting to see how uh, the funeral practices and like you mentioned that we're still burying folks in shrouds, even today. And putting them into burial places like a tomb and and what have you, and uh, so thank you uh, so much for that, and uh, thank you for participating again. Where can uh, people uh, get more information about the museum and also about the shroud? Uh, the people can learn more about the museum through our website at nmfh.org. And Nora. And the best website for shroud information is still run by Barry Schwartz. It's shroud.com. It's the first, the oldest, and the most visited website about the shroud. And just about anything you would want to discover is available there. Uh, the thing I love about Barry's website, though, is he is very careful to make sure that the all the information that's on there is accurate. And so it's a great resource for people wanting to learn about the shroud. Yeah, thank you for that. So NMFH, National Museum of Funeral History.org, NMFH, and then of course, Barry Schwartz's uh, shroud.com. And, and, and to your point, shroud.com, there is so much out there that you, you'll never be able to read it all. And, and I will admit, I think Barry has read everything or just about everything. And <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so he is a wealth of, uh, of great information, nmfh.org, shroud.com. And otherwise, please stay tuned for many other videos in this series of the backstory on the Shroud of Turin. And if you get a chance, please visit guypowell.com and sign up for more episodes. And if you like this one, please rate it with five stars. Thank you so much, Genevieve. Thank you so much, Nora. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Absolutely.